Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Glenvor podcast. This one is a little out of sync of our previous three episodes which have really been stepping through the history and the background to the website which is uh, glenvorwhiskey.com and I'm your host, I should introduce myself, uh, Jason or JJ. Welcome, thanks for pressing play. Please get involved, ask questions, check out the site if you want to, if you're interested in whiskey history or Glenvor, Glenvar, Glenmore, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's there for you, free of charge, and it's a resource that I hope will shed new light, bring new entertainment, be informative, and really raise the profile of the distillery, but also the appreciation. But anyway, I was saying there in the introduction, um, we have this I thought I'd press record on this one because we've got a bit of an event coming. And I think, you know, the podcast, we do want season one or series one to step through the distillery. I want that to, you can follow. So you're going to do like, we're going to do the first draft of plans next in the uh, early 1890s. And then we're going to step through the alterations. So you can, through that season, you can follow everything. But that's not to say the site isn't alive, functioning, and other things are going up. So I wanted to almost do uh, a separate stream of things. And um, we'll put these under another season. And these are really where you can step in, uh, not really have to get the, the foundations of the website in audio or virtual or even real terms i guess because you know those will be those that initial season one so there is an event as i said and i really wanted to discuss this and it will be the um the focus of uh, an article which is coming out next week on the website and it's always great to see new information about glenvor coming out you know this is something that i continually say and is underlined by the success of the website in terms of finding it new information and collating and bringing it together and piecing together the history the timeline the flow uh, what is correct what isn't correct dispelling myths wrong facts and creating new ones and um, a lot of head scratching but yes, you know, there has been a, a major announcement the last couple of weeks, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, um, which is the distilleries of Great Britain and Ireland, a journey through the heartlands of whiskey from 1922 to 1929. So what these were, um, it's a series of lost articles, I suppose. And these were found by chance in 2015 by James Eady, um, as they were looking to reestablish their blend and, um, you know, if you're looking to do that, then you're going through the, the archives um, and where else better is probably the, the British Library. And they stumbled across some things. And one of them was this collection of articles which were discovered purely by accident, they say. And it's, you know, we have Alfred Barnard who wrote the, the distilleries of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And those are sort of centric to the 1880s, round about that period. This is relatively an unknown period, even though it's much nearer our own present day scenario, which is the 1920s. Now the 1920s is a very interesting time in whiskey because um, we're seeing the after effects of the First World War distilleries may be coming back to life some not coming back to life we're starting to see the 
growth of um, larger corporations by acquisitions and building bigger brands. And we're also seeing some distilleries really, really struggling um, through the economic times. You know, we had prohibition around the corner. You've obviously got the Great Depression. All these things are knocking on the door of whiskey and causing real anguish opportunity as well it must be said but a lot of despair and a lot of closures and so this series of articles really have been unseen for 90 years almost a century and what the team at James Eady have done is decided with the help of the the British libraries to scan these photocopy them and and that's the basic terminology I'm using here but really they've put them together um, faithfully and into almost like a, a tabletop coffee book and yes it's not cheap 150 pounds um, I get it you know but there's I mean how do you judge I was speaking to Leon briefly at James E.D. you know and it certainly came up how do you judge demand for this book you know I'm sure there's a lot of terms and conditions from the British Library granting them access to this material and reproducing it and you know hopefully some of the monies will go back into the library and to preserve further works and acquire more works if anybody from the British Library is listening to this I have asked you before but um, it's a very quick search I think from one of your colleagues but I'm so after a peep in uh, um, pictures of Inverness, a peep into the Glenvor distillery, which was published in about 1898 and actually has Alfred Barnard as the author. That is the one top of my list I really would like for Glenvor and for the website. So a little detour there, which I apologize for, but back to this actual book, which has been discovered. It shows what is out there if people look and are dedicated and focused enough to search in places i mean the library the british library is so vast there's so much in there that you know who knows what else whiskey wise is there and you know nobody's really cared about whiskey history until relatively you know maybe the turn of the millennium i guess you know where people have really sought to understand whiskies in liquid form but also in historical form and it's thanks to everybody that's written books everybody that's engaged with whiskey that we have a real buzz and a real enthusiasm and appetite for whiskey history which is probably where I come in in Glenvor but anyway we'll come on to that in a second Uh, there's going to be a single volume this book you're looking at photographs from 116 distilleries I would think these photographs have never been seen before certainly the two for Glenvor I've never seen and I'm excited about those but we mustn't you know I, I think we're very much a visual society now um and what I would say is it's the text you know as much as we love photos as love as much we love the snapshot it's the text that holds the real detail I think and you know Alfred Barnard no not a criticism but he did like to throw in a little bit of a travelogue you know I, I can montage I can get that because you know you're reading a a magazine you're wanting to hear about it wasn't just the whiskey or the distilleries it was almost about the the journey to them uh, the environment they were in for this book from what i've seen so far is more focused on the subject matter at hand which is the distilleries and that focus i think is is great to have so some things about the book um the articles are written anonymously so we don't actually know who did them there's no author named whatsoever or in the contents or in the journal in the pieces themselves every photograph wasn't unaccredited so we don't know who went to the trouble to set up the photographs to get them in pose etc and i'm sure back in the 1920s getting your photograph taken was still pretty much a novelty Um, but again that's not there could they have used local firms 
possibly, but I, given the sheer scale of these things, perhaps the writer was also a, you know, a budding photographer. A photographer. I'm liking what I've seen so far, but I am just going to talk about the Glenvor aspect. Um, but in terms of actually what we have um, in the book, you know, you really are looking at 124 distilleries. Um, some of these have never been seen or discussed in this detail. They're long gone to history. Others we know today, but some we don't have that timeline, that snapshot back in time, you know. You know, the book is going to give us this, and I think that's going to be very exciting. I did at first scratch my head about the book because part of me said this is just going to be um, a glorified photocopy, um, nicely conveniently put into one um, reference guide, and that that's true to a certain extent. But I, I do know that there has been a little bit more work to create a little bit more. Obviously, you've got table of contents, references, and um, certainly. Um, a couple of people that I know, um, Annabelle was quite positive about it in her quote. Um, Charles McLean, obviously, um, very much into his whiskey history and books. And uh, probably the one I place above all of them is Mark Davidson, uh, also known as the Jolly Topper at Romile Whiskies. You know, when he gets excited about a book or whiskey history, you know it's something special. And I do know by sending him various things I'm discovering about Glenvor. He was very interested, particularly the salad in boxes. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more to come, Mark. I just need to get through it bit by bit. So what do you get? Well, it comes out on Tuesday. This podcast might be out by then. We shall see. Um, we've got a master of the quake giving us uh, an introduction. I'm sure that's nice enough, but um, to me, I tend to skip past introductions, uh, you know, especially, you know, if we're really looking at the 1920s here and I don't need somebody to tell me what they think. Um, I'm going to discover it for myself. We've got those 124 distillery profiles. We've got 640 photographs um, digitized by the archive team at the library. You know, 640. I think the plan is as well is to release some of these. There's going to be maybe about 10 initially um, of the articles in a low res format due to copyright. And you'll be able to read these pieces as they are in the book. I'm pleased to say that Glenvor is going to be one of the first 10 and hopefully, you know, it just continues uh, the real interest around the distillery, which has been partially helped by me, I suppose. It's also going to be an A2 map of distilleries included in the book and you're just going to get a £10 voucher off James E.D. products or Romal whiskies. I don't know if there's a, con a minimum spend on that £10, but you never know. I, I, I have reviewed James E.D. in the past, certainly when I was working for a very, very popular website or a formerly popular website, and solid enough releases. They did get a little bit stuck down the whole sherry-coloured um, bit, which was a bit disappointing, but I think since then I've had, um, they're doing a sort of pub range, um, famous pub names, and I've had a couple of them, and I have to say 46%, normally under 50 quid, bang for your buck you know no complaints whatsoever but that's the book let's get on to the Glenvor section shan't we i will be buying it you know i i think I, i'm sure some people out there are going to be looking at this as almost like an investment opportunity i've got some very rare whiskey books as do you no doubt and they're not i've acquired them because i have an interest in history other people might be acquiring them because they obviously a financial investment aspect and you know 
there are some of the Alfred Barnard books which are very, very profitable uh, if you bought them originally. But I think for me, this is not about value or investment potential. This, you know, the real information and the real joy of this book is the inf- the knowledge and facts and detail printed on those pages, not what you can charge at auction. However, saying that, I'm sure if it sells out, you know, the first print run, again, I think James E.D. don't know how to gauge demand. They've obviously, uh, it will be limited. Could there be a second, third run? Who knows? Will some people stick a, a, a book into auction? No doubt. Um, but Roma whiskies, I think, do send pretty much everywhere and uh, the one thing about a book is it's not breakable um, unlike whiskey bottles uh, which unfortunately happened to a friend of mine um, who did ship from Roma whiskies abroad but with a book you can be fairly confident you're going to get um, the, the finished article and I do think it comes in a sort of outer cover to protect it as well so that's all good but anyway we're going to move on from the wine and spirit trade record and we're going to talk about the actual article itself now the glenvore um thing it's quite sh- it's quite short so i think it's over spread over two pages you've got the text you've got the text on one side and you've got the photographs on the other uh one of the photographs is of the malting floor in 1924 you know which is when the i think it's pub- this article was published in november 1924 and the malting floor is yes it's the original malting floor we recognize as glenvore very small very compact um you've got um five men there almost shadow-like figures um, focusing on turning the malt, uh, that germination process, getting it ready for the stills. And it's quite a eerie image because all the imagery I've had of the malting floors at Glenvor have been when it was not in operation. Um, you'll remember, if you've been following the website, there's a very atmospheric and poignant picture of um, William Burney standing with his dog, gazing out across the floor and probably deep in thought and also thinking about all the times and the hustle and bustle that this area of the distillery once had. That photograph I believe was taken in the late 1940s when they were going through the process of the salad in box installation and that this is him almost saying goodbye to the floor. But here we have an actual image of the men on the floor and you can immediately see just how tight it is and you're thinking this is a distillery that's expanding um, consistently since it was built and yet the molting floor it was always the bottleneck of the distillery and that became very clear in the salad in boxes um, document that was self-published by McKinley and Burnley where they outlined the cost of a new crew of men to work the molting floor to build a, expand a new molting floor or they had the the option of the salad in boxes I think, you know, I, I just love seeing that, you know, you can tell it's the Glenvor floor with the windows, the size, you know, it's it's fantastic to see, you know. This is something that um, we have not um, seen before. And this is, this is part of the joy of the discovery of this book. So in the article, I'm talking a little bit, the introduction is about the book, but I'm not going to review the book. I'm focusing on the one chapter of interest to me. There will be a Glenalbin, and I think there's a Melbourne. I will do those separately for those websites in good time as well. The other image is, it's a fascinating image as well. It's one of the still house, um, and we've got two gentlemen, two very rugged looking Highlanders standing out front of their stills, very proud-like. 
the one on the right's got a, his cap, his bonnet, and uh, looks. Well, I've said he looks like he could fit into any trendy bar in Edinburgh. You know, we've got the tweed there, we've got the Highland look. Possibly he could be, you know, the head brewer, the distiller at that time. Might even be the distillery manager, um, Robert Robertson. We possibly will never know. However, uh, one thing I've noticed on this whole project when it comes to Glenvor is expect the unexpected. Never say never. Things will turn up and you can take it from there. So we've got the two stills and we also have um, something to the left, which I'm still trying to identify. It looks like it is perched up and it, potentially it could be a still, although it looks uh, a little more fabricated um, and riveted to be, it looks more like a tank, but, you know, still debating that point. But you've got the pulleys behind uh, and the, the wires that we have seen in previous still photographs of Glenvor. This is very, very recognisable as Glenvor to me. We've also got, you can see the real curvature of the far still, you know, the the dip in the line arms, the almost like swan neck appearance of that still. Beautiful to see, you know, these stills would probably have been designed by John Burney himself. The McKinleys just left him to get on with it. And that's very true when we actually start to break down the text in the book. And I've done this in the article as well. I've actually said, I'll quote, I'll quote from the article and then I'll, sorry, from the text in the book, and then I'll tell you my thoughts on it. So, from the actual book, it says the distillery is one of two owned by McKinley's and Burnley Limited, and the premises were built in the year 1893 by Mr. John Burney. Correct. Um, although we did spell into 1894 as well, but you know, keep it. Let's keep it simple. Keep it a year. And the, the interesting thing is something there that I've always believed, and we've actually got it in print now. You know. John Burney was very much the person who built the distillery. Now, by that, I mean he's not out there with his bricks and mortar, you know, doing a brick at a time. Obviously, they had people to do that. And uh, we all know Charles C. Doig designed the distillery. But, you know, John would have sat down and the internals, how to make whiskey, what's involved, that would have been his creation. He might have taken advice, etc. But you have to remember, John did his apprenticeship on Speyside with the Ben Rennes distillery for many years, successful there. I think he was there for seven or eight years. Then he moved to the position of Glenalbin distillery in Muirtown Inverness to become the manager, head brewer. And that was a relatively new distillery in terms of, not of its age but the fact that it had only been purchased the year before and brought back to life by its new owners i would have thought john would have played a part in um, the internals of that distillery as well glen Oban, as we know went on to tremendous success under his tenureship um, so much so that um, as we know he wanted a part of that success they said no he got kicked out they went their own ways and he ended up co-owning glenvore in a nutshell, he knows how to distill. He knows what's involved. He knows the equipment. We know some quirks from Glen, Glen Alban as well. We know the D-shaped worm tubs. Was that John's idea? I don't know. I have not researched the D-shaped worm tubs at all. I don't know how they've come about. I've never seen a photograph of them. That would be fantastic if there is a photograph in this book or somewhere else. Did what? You know, How did that come about and why did it happen? Was that there before um, John took over? These are all things to be answered in the future. However, in print, there it is, John um, built the distillery. What would be interesting is we have a, a writer, a photographer on site, and someone's obviously gonna take them around and furnish them with this information. Now, we know from the 1898 Brewers and Distillers Magazine article that John actually did the tour for the writer. 20 years later, give or take, would have John done it again? He lived nearby um, Inverness. 
He was always on site. The Bernies were the, 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 the ever-present on site, I think. From John to his son, one of the Bernies was always on site at Glenvor and they had their own office. So potentially, John took the tour and John would have obviously given that information. Or the other likely candidate would have been uh, Robert Robertson, the distillery manager who John picked and who also came from Speyside. We might never know, but um, we've got the outcome of the visit. Two extensive malting barns afford ample space for the germination process. Correct, we had two malting barns. Well, they might have been extensive to the writer at the time, but they certainly weren't extensive enough to fulfill production needs. Uh, they're about 130 foot in length and about 20 foot wide. Um, that 20 feet wide is not huge when you start to think about it, and it's certainly reflected in the photograph and the article as well. What they could produce really, as we know, um, became a bit of an issue for Glenvor and Glenalbin had to step in with its larger molting floors because Glenalbin across the road was a much bigger site. And the reason why they could do that is obviously in the 1920s, um, probably just shortly before this article was researched and published um, in 1924, they purchased uh, Glenalbin. A bobby dressing machine and the malt mill is an excellent bobby too high model. Now, I keep wanting to see Bobby, but because that's a Scottish thing, but it's not as Bobby. Um, Bobby is um, after Robert Bobby Limited, who are engineers from St. Andrew Street in Bury, St. Edmunds, Suffolk, um, I think. They were really involved in agriculture and the malting industry. Now, the mills at Glenvor remain a focus and are relatively unknown. We know they had a two bar, so, you know, that probably reflected their production at the time. Very reliable. We also know when they closed, they would have had the four bar Porteous mill, um, which was again, the standard throughout the industry. What we don't know is when that Porteous mill moved in, when the Bobby model moved out, and what happened to either of them. You know, uh, speaking to Alan Winchester, he said that, um, the, you know, he's a great interest because Highland Park was the first, I think, with the, the four bar Porteous. And we wonder when did Glenvor make that? Because generally, when these malt mills came into distilleries, they tend to stick around. If you've actually been uh, to a distillery tour, you know they will say, "Yep, that malt mill's been here since ever. It's broken down. It's never broken down. It was so good the company went bankrupt." But for some reason, Glenvor replaced. I think I do have some detail around that um, when it was. I think it was part of the continuous. Uh, improvements at the distillery so I think the malt mill would have been replaced later in the 1920s but we shall see that one is left to be delved into and I know the Suffolk um, library has some archives of this company I did check them out originally on the basis of looking for uh, the Saladin boxes because this company um, Robert Bobby Limited um, seemed to be the engineers of choice for Glenvore not only did they provide the malt mill originally and potentially did some engineering work on site at the time they also were involved in the salad and boxes in the 1940s so they have a long relationship with the owners of the distillery you know it could twist that again and look into did they do work at Glenalbin did they actually prior to Glenvor do work for the McKinley's in Leaf to a certain extent possibly you know there's definitely a link there and it's one a company that crops up now and again in research Malt bins will shortly be installed in the deposit and to permit this alteration, the present offices are to be demolished and replaced by new buildings on a site near the gate of the distillery. That's correct. Um, haven't really 
gone into too much on this on the website as of yet because we're working our way in chronological order through the plans that we have discovered. I know, because I have had a sneak peek of what's in the future, we do have that movement in plan form. You know, we are seeing, when you see the 1892 plans of the distillery, it's a little bit unusual, and Alan commented on this as well, to have the Customs and Excise Office and the Manager's Office across the corridor from one another, but also wedged in between, I think it is the kiln room and the malt mill. So you can imagine it's quite a noisy environment and you've got the two offices there. Normally the offices would be out with the production buildings area. You know, you could, as you say, the gates into a distillery. If you think of many of the traditional distilleries that haven't been bulldozed or wrecked or, you know, as we seem to love to do in Scotland to a certain extent, they're very much in a courtyard setting. And the offices, there was always a distillery office as such, and it was always away from, near enough, but always away from the production buildings. So in a way, this is changing that um, emphasis in the original design. I think probably why they stuck them in there originally is because of convenience, it's because of money. That's something we're seeing totally again and again through the research of Glenvor um, and its layout as a distillery. The original design was very compact, very Charlesy Doig, very functional, but it didn't have any exter great external buildings. It technically only had a half a warehouse, which we'll come to as well. So it was very compact, streamlined, and cost efficient. You know, they didn't want to build two separate buildings to house offices. Let's just stick them in the thing we're building at the moment. And that lasted for a little while, but was corrected further down the line as we see here. The mash tun, which was inserted in the mash house, which you would expect, um, shortly before the war, this would be the First World War, um, 1,600 bushels weekly are mashed. So this, again, is interesting because we have a slightly different date. Um, what we believed prior to this is that the new mash tun came in in 1925. And it, the original mash tun, which was installed obviously in the 1890s, was it could handle about 1.61 tons or about 250 bushels. The new one had uh, 10 metric tons capacity, so much larger, much able to cope with the introduction of a third still, the, the emphasis to produce more Highland malt, and it was made from Scottish larch. What we don't know is now we're questioning when that mash tun went in. The article is giving us that detail that it was probably installed in the before the summer of 1914 when the war started. So we need to look back um, and try and investigate that further because we do have some dates which differ. And I think this is just the general trend we're starting to see. You'll recall the 1898 alterations at the, the distillery and how we believe that they were pr probably put on hold due to the Patson crash. You know, the economic downturn, the demand for whiskey, not only of Highland malt and blends, dropped, and so they put a pause on any alterations or expansion plans. I think what's becoming clearer to me now is that's not entirely the case. Yes, some of the big name um, focuses in terms of expansion, like a still, were held back to the 1920s. But other things, um, it's looking increasingly likely, and we'll discover this more with research ongoing, things did happen prior to that. So it looks like to me, I think some of the 1898 um, improvements did take place, but they weren't fully finished or fully developed in time. And instead it was just a slow progress. So by the end of the 1920s, you've probably got the Glenvor standing there, which you would have expected at the end of the 1890s if there wasn't the economic change in conditions.
but it's another thing to investigate, isn't it? And it's also, you know, mentioning that third still, which it suggests was in place in 1924, but prior to this, um, our information is it was 1925. It could well be looking back to that Distillers and Brewers article of 1898 um, magazine where John took the tour guide round. He was giving him the, the moment, but he was also giving him the future. Could it be that whoever took the writer around on this trip was again saying, yeah, we're going to have the third still here, you know, and the writer included that to be up to date rather than, um, you know, having an out of date publication as almost as quickly as it um, appeared in print. Seven washbacks are available for the fermentation of wash and supplied with a switching apparatus. Correct. Now, we do know that Glenvor always had seven washbacks. When it was built, it had four. When it was in 1898, the alterations were to extend the room and put in two more. The seventh washback is the mystery. Um, it will be one I will solve, and we can take it from there. We know that those seven in 1975 were still in use and noted to hold about 55,000 gallons. But that seventh washback is um, one that I'm going to solve. We've done the salad in boxes. I want that washback. We've done the stills, but I want that washback. You know what I'm saying? So we will get there. There are three stills with a joint capacity of 8,000 gallons. Correct. And this brings us back to the whole point of that third still was in there. And uh, you'll know from the 1898 plan of alterations. Again, look to the website, people, if you're really interested in what I'm talking about. It's all there. There's a section called distillery plans, or I'm trying to index things by the year. So if I'm seeing 1898, go in uh, to whiskey.com, punch in 1898, and you get all the hits for that year. Look at the timeline. I'm trying to, there's a page for a timeline. You can see the life of the distillery everything about the distillery including people unfortunately passing away getting married you know it's it's life it's there in the timeline it's very alive but there will be links within there making it more interactive into the articles where you can please yourself and explore but yes we had three stills the 1898 plans actually give us the space for the fourth still which never came but we know that um, the original stills were built by a glasgow firm fleming bennett and mclaren again engineered 